0: So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ram Dass wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ram Dass's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy.
1: To have a, a different experience of yourself or of consciousness, not as a separate self, but as a, a feeling, a sensation, of being completely integrated into the web of the universe I mean and so to taste that even if you just taste it for a moment and you come back down it sparks something yeah uh, exactly uh, exactly
2: Hey everyone, it's Ragu, and for this podcast that's coming your way in a couple of minutes, uh, I wanted to do a little bit of an introduction, because this is kind of the first time I've done this before, but I did a podcast uh, on another show. It's basically One Commune, Jeff Krasno. Some of you may remember Jeff uh, through the Wanderlust Festival, those amazing festivals that are that were uh, all around the world. He did quite a job. Jeff did. He's also got this podcast, which he had me on, and he uh, he he wanted to basically talk about Ramdas, and so for me it became a nice opportunity to just uh, remember Ramdas and you know, talk about some of my experiences with him. So I thought. That would be uh, interesting to everybody out there. I mean, some stories you may have heard, but uh, I think they bear listening to again. And there's some, we had a wonderful dialogue. Jeff and I really uh, hit it off when I first met him, which is not that long ago, maybe a year and a half ago. He's got uh, so the organization that he started after Wanderlust is called One Commune, and it is a video course platform with amazing people from Deepak to Russell Brand and so on. and And they have courses which they offer, and uh, you can then become a part of their membership communities. And it's all about personal and uh, societal well being. This is the crux of it and uh, he's got this beautiful place in Topango that he invites people to and they they film them and so on it's it's quite uh, uh a an interesting mix of people and teachers and in a way it's it has some relationship with what we do at love serve remember where we have retreats and we film them and we have of course all this incredible ramdas uh Archive from which we draw and, and put, to co- put together courses and so on, as you're familiar with if you are on the ramdas.org mailing list, which you should be. Anyhow, he, um, his central premise is basically a, a life, what he's dedicated to is a life that's, that does not differentiate between daily life and the passion that he has, which is to share all of this wonderful content. And he did it with these festivals that really uh, combined uh, music and yoga and and wisdom and talks from wonderful teachers. So I have the same thing. This is what I've been doing all these years, which means the most to me. And and, uh, by the way, I feel a lot of grace in the fact that um, what my passion is is my daily work life. So I, I'm you know, very, very fortunate. And Jeff is very fortunate. So um, what we're doing together, which is one of the purposes of this introduction, is we have a wonderful course that we put together that comes from basically the Be Here Now network. And it's meditations that uh, were done with me through mind rolling with Sharon Salzberg and Jack Cornfield and Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, all of these uh, incredible family of teachers that we have through the network and through the retreats that we've done with Ramdas over the years. I also I am really happy about the so we put together this meditation course in conjunction and in partnership with one commune called commune, uh, and the meditations of guided meditations from Ramdas. We cherry picked from this incredible catalog course that we have, and then you get the bonus meditations from Jack Sharon Joseph and and on. You know, uh, so it's a very robust ten day course, perfect for what ails us after coming into this new year after the holidays, and uh, I. So it starts on Monday. Let me get this right. January 16th. And it runs for 10 days. And it's free. Everybody can join and take part. If you want, uh, we're going to, you know, send notices about the timing and so on for one to be able to make a donation, uh, to be able to get the material, you know, f- uh, for how long? Commune will tell you how long. That's their part in all this. We're putting it on their platform, and it's a joint uh, venture and partnership with them. So we're—I'm uh, really excited about it. It's a f- phenomenal course, and um, just having Ramdas himself guiding. And I'm sure many of you have heard because we've put meditations out in in different ways before uh, through our courses and retreats with with Ramdas. So that is the announcement, and then, of course, you'll hear this. Uh, we had a wonderful report, Jeff and I, and uh, it just it, for me, just being able to sit and recount, you know, all these moments and experiences with Ramdas over these many years uh, is is a boon to stop my little world and my me me land uh, perspective. So here you go. This is uh, myself on uh, mind rolling. And Jeff is kind of, you know, since I did the podcast on his show, he's prompting me and so on. And then I'm bringing up stuff. And as I say, it's a wonderful dialogue. So this is myself with Jeff Krasno on the Com- One Commune podcast. And it's all pointing to this wonderful 10 day Ramdas and Friends. Be here now be here now and pause uh is is there's more to the name but i don't remember exactly what it is uh it's i know it's going to put a pause in your life so go and have a enjoy the uh, uh the podcast and uh look to uh on the show notes and everywhere else we've got going go to one commune and you'll be able to join the uh uh the 10-day meditation course. Thank you.
1: When I'm in this kind of uh repartee uh I I've, I've no choice. I'm all here. I'm all yours. Mm, yeah. I'm, I'm with you yeah. 100%. Yeah. And uh and that is a great um luxury to be honest uh given the attention economy that vies for your absolutely. awareness moment to moment. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, it's. uh I would say podcasting is a form of of self-preservation for my my, my attention span. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to put it, I like it. Well, I'm excited to explore uh the life and times of the great Ram Das with you um in our conversation um and very very thrilled for our impending uh collaboration to bring his teachings and and the teachings of others under the aegis of, of the Be Here Now Network um, and brings these teachings and guided meditations to the world together, mm-hmm. so thank you for your for your uh, flexibility and your enthusiasm there.
2: Yeah, no, I'm right with you there. I mean, I'm uh, looking forward big time to sharing uh, these, not just from Ram Dass but some of our other friends, Jack Cornfield included, and, and others, Sharon. So, yeah, this will be a f- a very fun
1: thing yeah so we share numerous passions and life experiences so i know that we're both um what i might call spiritual refugees of the music industry (laughs) Uh, and i believe we were both radio djs so i was at uh wkcr in new york city that was the columbia university radio station for a good stint and i know you were in montreal and I believe it was under uh, the auspices of your role as a DJ and program director there that you first were introduced to Rob Doss. So c- can you talk a little
2: bit about that? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that was a demarcation point for me in my life, obviously, and for many, many, many people. Uh, in fact, we w- there's such a, a a through line for everybody about what happened when you. First heard Ramdas, or you met him, or whatever, yeah. Uh, but they, uh, the front desk called me and said, "Oh, there's some people who want to talk to you. There's uh, a, about uh, promoting a, a, a lecture, a talk." I said, "Okay." So they called in and said, uh, "Yeah, Ramdas is speaking at McGill University, which is like the Harvard of Canada, pretty much." And I said, "Okay, except Ramdas. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> Who's that?" And then they immediately said, "Well, you know, Tim Leary and Richard Alpert." I went, "Oh shit! Oh, of course, absolutely, hundred percent. Love them guys." And but I said, "You must have a tape or something from a previous talk that he gave, so at least I have an idea of what, you know what we're talking about here." And so they sent one over to the station. I went into a studio. I put it on. And demarcation point, okay, wow, this is what I've been kind of thinking about but couldn't put into words and feeling that it's okay. We are not what the society and parents and family and teachers have told us we are, mind, ego, believe your thoughts, believe your story, improve yourself and get ahead and become a somebody, and that was just extraordinarily relieving in the moment. And then I said, "Okay, where, where is?" This? I actually, you know what I did? I put it on the air in the middle of the day during uh, some point in the week. Nobody had ever heard anything like this at that point, most especially. And the switchboard just lit up. People were like, "Holy shit, what is this?" And I, for my part, went. Okay, I got to meet this guy. And so they arranged that meeting, and that was, that got me um, my first real experience of, okay, you, and it's funny because you just said, you know, through the podcast, you give complete attention. If we are forced into this complete attention, right, which is a beautiful thing, that happened naturally when Ramdas did that really to me he i mean he didn't do anything he just how can what can i do for you without saying a word just created a space of uh, uh it nothing to do with richard and nothing to do with ramdas it only to do with me and and what the universe needed to present to me in that moment so that kind of an unconditionality and a presence that got me to india
1: mm. amazing mm. yeah he had a way about him. Um, And it was certainly the message, uh, the message as vesseled by the words, but it was also a presence to him that almost created a form of uh, uh, drishti or one-pointedness of mind. You know, when you're listening to him, it's almost the sounds Mm at that are as captivating as the words themselves. There is just a presence to his delivery that really brought you into this one-pointedness. It's it is it's unique, you know, not everybody has it. I mean yeah. Alan Watts does it for me too. Yeah. But yeah. And then, he had you know, it yeah. Yeah, In fact, he had
2: it. How many of us, especially coming up in the sixties, seventies and eighties, even it's Alan Watts and Ramdas is your first entry point. And what you're saying is so absolutely true, and we know it even more readily from being around music and having that as part of our vocation, how powerful sound is. And, you know, there's Tibetan Buddhists, uh, monks, that use a, 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 a sound directive that is a city of some sort able to stop people in their tracks or... Or completely change an emotion over. I mean, it's, it's definitely a thing for sure.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's funny that you bring up the parallel with music, um, and clearly one of the best ways to begin meditating is just to shut up and listen for a moment. But um, but there are all these I wouldn't call them gimmicks, but like tricks in some ways to help us find that single pointedness. You know, whether you're using Tibetan bowls or Mantra, um, or or just as I'm sure you've experienced thousands of times, I think one of the reasons why so many of us in the music industry uh, end up making this a slight taking this off ramp is um, is because we know the experience of connecting with the foundational reality of something and not the symbol of it. And that's what music can so often be. It is just dong. It is the thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, It's not the original a word vib- that we've given it. The yeah. original vibration.
2: Um. Uh, Krishna says something that's... Um, says it very directly and simply. Because what he does... And for those of you who don't know, he's one of the foremost uh, kirtan or chant uh, uh, singers in, in in this side of the world and in India. He's now being asked to go to India. He's like bring in, you know, bring it back from America. Uh, but he would say, uh, "So these are mantras that take us into that one point and and beyond into the connection to the intuitive reality, which is the." Love or whatever we want to call it, and uh, the music, and especially what with, with what he's doing, because you know he grew up as a Westerner and he was in a rock and roll band, and so chord changes are very familiar, you know, to people. And it's the music that uh, it it's the um, the mantra rides on top of it, and basically, the medicine goes down a hell of a lot easier.
1: <laughs> with yeah. that music. Yeah. Yeah. I I got the opportunity to develop a bit of a relationship with Herbie Hancock. Mm. And mm-hmm. um I was on tour with him here and there for a summer. And uh and he's a Buddhist. Um I think he's a Nichiren. Yes. Um, yes he is and a, yeah. and he would have a ritual before going on stage every night and he would chant the uh, nam Yoho renge kyo Now, I had never heard mantra before, uh, but I was pretty into Herbie Hancock, and there I was as a pretty young man being in his backstage and then he would have sort of an inner sanctum, kind of the backstage behind the backstage where he would then gather for about 10 minutes before showtime and he would invite anyone that was interested uh, to chant with him. But you'd have to stay the whole time. You couldn't, you know, pop in and out. And uh, I remember we were at Carnegie Hall, actually, and uh, they run a tight union ship at Carnegie Hall, and he was in the back uh, chanting, and um, you could tell that there was a little uneasiness because... he was supposed to hit the stage right at eight, and here it was. It was eight oh one, and he was still chanting <laughs> in the back. But um, but even I, I can't re- really remember what the the literal Sanskrit um, translation is to Namjoho renge Kyo, something about the lotus flower, something. But you actually don't really connect with the meaning of the words anymore. It's actually just bringing you in to the present through sound, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah, well, they all yeah. have a very particular vibration that they... I mean, like Indian music, for instance. All the ragas, they all have some relationship to a time of day, to a mood, to a spiritual expression. So, yeah, I mean, that's why, you know, of course, the, these people in the East are so highly developed. <laughs> I mean, look at the Tibetans and that extraordinary philosophy... That I mean, I particularly am enamored with it because it it just sings to me in terms of okay, this makes sense this uh their um perspective of reality and the truth, and the it, yeah these the Indians have definitely developed that over obviously thousands of
1: years, yeah, so can you time stamp that experience? That you had meeting Ram Dass and and discovering that y- y- you didn't have to wear the space suit <laughs> all the time you want me to
2: time stamp
1: well, just more or less <laughs> give me a give me a I year give, uh, yeah
2: i always well sixty nine seventies when I met him, okay
1: yeah, so in the he winter. was so he was post um kind of psychedelia at that juncture. Well, or, he, or maybe,
2: what he did yeah. was, he, okay, so just a fast track thing on what happened with him and people do know that he was thrown out of Harvard, he and Leary for uh, the experimentation with, which is now happening big time with ethneagens. Uh and um, so, yeah, it was really a kind of an uptight situation. Anyhow, but for him, I mean, they did things like I, I was really fortunate, Jeff, because I ended up in this place, Kosani. It was just me and Krishnas and a couple other people in Ramdas. We were waiting for a, a Buddhist meditation teacher to come and teach meditation. He ended up not being able to come, and where ensued, we were doing a self-directed thing. Ramdas being more or less the teacher, and um, it was just. Uh, extraordinary because at night he would regale us with stories of those days at Millbrook and so on and Harvard. And one thing they did, for instance, let's go into a room, a small room, just well, Leary and Alpert and um, a couple of the other uh, people that were around. We're not going to leave the room for seven days. We are going to take with us as much psychedelics as you could hold in a suitcase, and we're just going to ingest. They did this for a week. Who would do this? This is kind of psycho from, like, what? And, uh, and Ram Dass, so he would regale us with these stories. So it was really you know quite unbelievable. But the thing is that he realized at that point, I keep coming down, keep coming down. I mean, it, it gives a beautiful glimpse, seems to, but keep coming down. And he said, so he met up with his David Padua, a friend of his, who was going, to, you know, off to India and then Japan, and they were just going to do this tour, and they were into Buddhism, basically. And uh, the rest is, is of course, history. But what Ramdas was looking for was to find that map of consciousness. And that's why he went, and he left. Uh, he didn't. He never really left psychedelics behind. Obviously, later in his life, he maybe occasionally he would do some mushrooms or something. Uh, but uh, he f- then, of course, met Neem Karoli Baba, and realized what that map was. And then he came back, and translated that map to young Westerners like ourselves, myself. And uh, that was the point at which I met him. He had been doing that for a couple of years, and I met him at that point. Actually, and it was maybe from the point I met him to him going back to India, which is why. Oh, you're going to India again? Okay, I got to go there. Well, I can't tell you. He says, I can't tell you the name of the person or where he is. I said I don't care. I'm coming, <laughs> and Krishnadas, of course, did went further and really forced them to give him a name of somebody in a, in a town nearby, you know. And they and they uh, ended up going a few months earlier than I did. And so that w- when he came back, those those talks are extraordinary talks, you know. And those are the first talks that we started the Be Here Now network with. Uh, Ram Dass Be Here Now Network and with those talks and I introduced them and I told pretty much this story that I'm relating right now
1: yeah in fact I really encourage all listeners if they want to go on a deep dive to go and and visit the the here and now podcast because I've been actually spending a bunch of time in there Um, it's yeah it's so much fun um, and 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 downloading many of the the early stories of um, and and the early lectures, which are fascinating. And 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 he ha- Ramdas has a certain awareness of his own story and his own journey that he tells, um, which is wonderful. And of, sport, of course, he does it in, in such an eloquent, poetic way. But you know. It it to listen to his story does really um, bring it into sort of a real stark relief because he was he was on the path to being essentially a, a very very highly respected tenured Harvard professor essentially I mean and he could have very easily stayed um, on that path I mean. He had gotten his, uh, his Ph.D. from Stanford in psychology, which I know that because my dad also got a Ph.D. in Stanford uh, uh, in psychology. Um, they weren't there quite at the same time, but pretty close. Um, and uh, and yeah, at that point, him being Richard Alpert, he was really fast tracking to a, a very illustrious place in academia. Um, and he certainly was enjoying some of the spoils of that. And I think he mentioned he had a Cessna. Yeah. He had a Cessna, Cessna and a Harley. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but he quickly grew
2: tired of both of them. It sounded like, well, um, it's yeah. hard, you know, when you fly the Cessna by yourself on acid, it, it can be a little bit. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was wondering actually, when I heard that, if that had ever happened or if you, oh man, Jesus. Okay. Um, and then you know and and you know you and I assume that a lot of people know these stories but but certainly not everybody does. you know at Harvard uh, I think Harvard had also kind of in that early 60s recruited um, Timothy Leary and um, and that's where they met and um, and uh, began a lot of the psychedelic escapades that I think really, Kind of bent that first chapter of his life, and you, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, it wasn't just psilocybin, but it was also peyote and DMT and LSD and all of the requisites. But you know, it's interesting, particularly as things have come full circle around psychedelics, and there's a lot of debate around it now. Um, but to what degree do you feel that psychedelics? were essential to his journey and potentially yours, even though they might not have represented the ultimate answer.
2: Yeah. Well, Ramdas himself said this, and I would have seconded it, said it myself. I, I think we all... There, there was only a couple of hundred Westerners that actually made it over to India to 300 tops. If you can think of what that relates to, you know, these incredible beings that, you know, that we know of these days. So thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of acolytes and so on. Um, But we... um, He said, I wouldn't have gotten Neem Karoli Baba. I wouldn't have gotten it without psychedelics. Hmm. And now, did everyone and their mother take acid before they went to India? Probably not. A greater proportion? Yeah. Yeah, I would say a great proportion. And, uh, yeah, it made uh, that experience... uh, Well, it's it's like experiencing a thing, not someone like we're relating back and forth. There was no us and them with this being, and it was so odd and so... uh, counterintuitive to what we had been the way that we had been brought up the devotion to the rational mind and and you know the exchange that we that we have with everybody you know it's conditional and to actually oh my god this is not happening at all so the idea that with psychedelics and by the way ramdas throughout his life I mean, from the very beginning, you know, uh, we just uh, uh, I'm, from the very beginning he would say it's about set and setting, and respect, you know, just um, having the correct preparation, which is what they're doing now with the psychedelic therapy. They're following that road, basically, and so he he was insistent on that. When anybody would ask him, Ramdas, do you think it'd be good for me to do some mushrooms or something, and he would go right to that place of respect and 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 making sure that uh, you really plan this and set and setting, meaning you know who and what you're who you're with and what music you play and you know and and uh, supremely important. And so he would say that all the way through. Um, but in the, that the the, the,
1: Cessa, the Cessna the notwithstanding
2: the Cessna notwithstanding <laughs> people listen to you know <laughs> oh God yes um, well and and all through his life so you you just said well he was at Harvard he had everything I mean he was an esteemed professor I mean he you know he was really uh, thriving. Why did he, you know, do what he did and and to the uh, disadvantage of his career, so so to speak? Well, he did it because he had no... He was so adventurous and so curious. Curious is probably the best word. And once he got introduced to uh, ethneogens and mushrooms in the beginning, so he had the idea, okay, there is something that is absolutely beyond our rational, uh, the way that we think, the story we believe, the thoughts that we believe. uh, There is something beyond that. So once that happened, it didn't matter. Harvard, no Harvard, he wanted to get at the truth. And he had such, you know, this is one being that had a deep, deep commitment to getting at that truth. And then alongside of that, Jeff, it was a commitment to share it. That's the greatest uh, aspect of Ramdas, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think curious is is the word. I mean, certainly he was well versed enough in Freudian psychology and cognitive behavior, behavioral therapy and, and all of the different kinds of therapies. But in the end, he felt that these fell short to really truly explain the human condition and, and the human experience. And so it was this, this journey and, um, and, uh, yeah, I think, you know, just to speak to my own experience with psychedelics, which certainly isn't, uh, I can't hold a candle to, to Ram Dass. <laughs> I think he mentioned, uh, that he tripped maybe 300 times or so. Um, but even, uh, but that might be, a, a, a an, the understatement of the year. Um, but, you know, even in my own experiences, um, to glimpse the possibility of experiencing consciousness not as a separate self, or as an ego self, or all of the different labels that one gives oneself in relation to society, culture, etc to have a, a different experience of yourself or of consciousness, not as a separate self, but as a, a feeling, a sensation of being completely integrated into the web of the universe. I mean, and so to taste that, even if you just taste it for a moment and you come back down, it sparks something.
2: Yeah, And uh, exactly, and, exactly. And the problem that can ensue is it's a, it's an incredible experience, and you want that experience over and over. And then, you know, people uh, around ayahuasca particularly, you know, they feel like things get revealed on successive journeys, and so which I'm sure is true, but there also is a truth around the uh, inevitability of attachment to the experience, and that creates other issues.
1: Absolutely. And you can also say that that is true for meditation as well. I mean, a lot of people are adopting a meditation practice for all of the so-called future benefits that it, it may yield, right? It's like, oh, well, I'll, I'll perform more optimally or yeah, I'll yeah. grow more gray matter. same say mindfulness,
2: same thing, you know, I'll be a better <laughs> stockbroker. Yeah. We'll That's right, I'll dress.
1: lower my cortisol levels. Yeah. And all of that stuff is is true. Yeah. Um but uh, to pursue a meditation or mindfulness practice for those goals, um you know, loses you lose the point. Mm. Um Yeah, absolutely. I gotta give you a quote. It's just
2: popped up. We just, uh, for Love Serve Remember Foundation, just uh, did a film, and it's uh, it's been out in theaters and and so on, and it's online, um, and it's um, it's the story of a man named K.C. Tuari, who was uh, Krishnas and I and other uh, others, uh, major mentor back in those day in India, in, in India, and uh, so he would go. It's called a brilliant disguise, because he was a regular man, taught at school, was a headmaster of a boys' school, had a family, the whole nine yards, the Samadhi of K.C. Tuari. So, Samadhi is just loosely, because it's a profound word, uh, you know, deep absorption through meditation. So, he used to go into these states around Neem Karoli Baba, and around, just around us. I mean, in in the film, I, I, like, had... Went on a, a little journey with my mother to India, and he was with us. And he at one point said, you know, you can't leave your religion behind and just adopt a, you know, an Eastern religion, you know. You can't just do that. You're Jewish? I said, yeah. And he said, well, you know, a prayer. Could you repeat a prayer in, in Hebrew? And uh, my mother and I looked at each other. And as I say in the film, she wasn't a big uh, follower of she was you know Jews that are more um, cultural it, cultural Jews re- yeah, yeah. yeah not sure. not the religious Jews. Anyhow, we sang Ankelohenu, which means there is nothing but God. There's the only one Enkelohenu, We went on, yeah, boom. He's in samadhi. My mother never seen anything like this. No pulse, no breath. And like a, a, you know, like a stone. And I said, it'll be okay, because I was used to it by that time. I knew that eventually. And he came back down and all. So he, I had never seen anything like this. I met uh, around Maharaji. There was two or three people that he would just look at them, bong, they were gone. And he'd say, what happened to them? You know, he'd have fun with us around it. But I had never seen anything like this in my life. And then... At one point, uh, in this film, he says, and this is loosely uh, translated. "Uh, Meditation isn't about concentration. Meditation is not a business. It's not a way to go from here to there. Meditation is part of your life meditation is a lifestyle and i thought it was yeah so great because we in the west have such an issue as you just said about how we f- we're going to do something and we're going to get something you know that's what we're based on and making it a fabric of our life is
1: really what it's about yes well we're living within an epistemological structure that sanctifies product over process. And it's built into kind of Abrahamic thought. I mean, uh, you know, man was fashioned out of a ceramic figurine as as matter and then animated through God's breath into his nostril. And, you know, that has followed us for, you know, millennia, this idea that we are somehow a thing, a product made of stuff. And, um, and, and usually very dumb stuff. <laughs> um, and, uh, um, and, uh, and I think, you know, the, the religions of the East have al- always seen the universe as process as emergent, as spontaneous, as mutually interdependent. So those of us in the West, to really connect with presence, which is really process, it requires us to divorce ourselves, to cleave ourselves in many ways from sort of the cultural hegemony of this sanctification of endless like product, like what are you going to make of yourself? (laughs) Literally. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And um, so it's, uh, so yeah, it's, uh, you know, and then when you have a moment of Satori and and you say, no, I'm just, uh, I'm just completely here now, impermanent in constant flux uh, well, it's, it's, it's a great relief, to be honest, uh, cause you, you release, you release yourself from all of those expectations, you know, that society thrusts, uh, upon you. Yeah.
2: Bob Dylan saved me, by the way, on that one, <laughs> when I was
1: 15 or whatever it was. Uh, yes. So, I, I want to talk about, uh, Neem Karoli Baba f- for a moment. So, um, so obviously, you know, Ramdas and, um, and Leary and, you know, everyone was, uh, experimenting with psychedelics and then, you know, realized that, oh, wait a minute. These guys in the East have been talking about this kind of experience for 2,500, 3,000 years or even f- farther back. And I think Leary I I got this from your uh I think from your podcast, but Leary actually tried to adapt the Tibetan Book of the Dead into a guidebook for psychedelics, which I, I well, thought was yeah. fascinating. Oh that's
2: a famous book, yeah, that Leary yeah. and Alpert and Metzner mm-hmm. put together. Um yeah. That but, was they were introduced by Aldous Huxley to the original right. Yeah, Tibetan right. Book of the Dead.
1: But then as you mentioned, as psychedelics, uh, as the effect of it wore off, um, you and Bhagavan Das and Ram, well, Richard at that juncture embarked on trips to India to find a potential guru. So what was that experience like? And, uh, and how did one? How did everyone connect with Neem Karoli Baba? And w- what were some of the beliefs and belief structures that, that Karoli Baba held that were so uh, enchanting?
2: That's a big one.
1: Yeah. Big, big one. Take it and bite. bite. Yeah, take it and, <laughs> and bite. Bites.
2: First of all, he didn't expose... Ex- expose. He did expose the truth, but it was not through any kind of philosophy or anything except one thing. He'd point his finger and go, in Hindi, sub ek, there is only one. Christ, Hanuman, Buddha, Mohammed, one, there's a one. And then that was the f- very, very first thing that we heard from him in that moment. That we first met him, it was only one. So that's the only uh, love, uh, as Ramdas said. Well, this foundation is called love, serve, remember. And Ramdas would say, the only instructions I had from my guru: love everyone, serve everyone, and remember God. Period. And tell the truth. He added that one on the end. So, um, so yeah, the it it. Um, how and really we got there because of Ramdas. Now he was introduced by Bhagavan Das, but it was Ramdas who Maharaji said we called him Maharaji. For those of you who don't know, just it's a common name for a holy being. Babaji or Maharaji, they're all kinds, which is good. You don't have to remember anybody's name. In fact, you don't have to remember. um, And Ma, all women are Ma's. It's so great, especially now. (laughs) Anyhow, we, uh, even Neem Karoli Baba said to us at one point, none of you would have gotten here except for Ramdas. And so, uh, yes, was there people who did get there who had not heard of Ramdas? Yes, I'm sure there were, but they were. There were f- many fewer of them, Ramdas, because of him going around and lecturing, and we bugged him. Now, some people, because he would say, "I can't tell you who he is or or what his name is," and w- so I wasn't going over there looking for a guru. I was interested in Eastern stuff before I met Ramdas. I'd heard, you know, I, through Allen Ginsberg. I love Al. I loved Alan. I love Alan now and he brought chanting and he's the first person i heard doing you know he'd have that crazy little harmonium and he'd be chanting hari krishna you know and on the east lower east side and uh, and t- he was the one who said marijuana is a good thing it's a good good medicine that my- oh good i i trusted alan you know this is at 14 years old whatever Uh, And I didn't actually find any till later because it wasn't ubiquitous in any (laughs) way. So Uh, anyhow, but we, um, we, those, there were those of us that said, okay, we can't go. And they stayed home, even though they knew about this being was there somewhere in India. And there were those of us that rummed us, please, I got to know, I got to go, (laughs) and, And those of us that did that, I mean, Krishnas, he finally, oh, this is a good story. Krishnas and uh, another friend, Ramesh Radas, who wrote uh, this great, uh, with Ram Das uh, Being Ram Das the memoir, just came out a couple of years ago. And uh, and Danny Goleman, who also wrote a phenomenal book named uh, uh, Emotional Intelligence, which is required reading for most people to this day. Um they said well, ram they bugged him really badly and then finally he said All right, I'll, uh you can write to this man in this town that's nearby where i stayed at the ashram when i first went and they did his name was kk K. shah who became ramdas's close close indian brother for uh, he died literally a month after ramdas and he said i'm not staying without ramdas so that's how close they were Anyhow, they wrote to him. He went to Maharaji. He said, look, this some Ramdas's students have written you, Maharaji, and they want to come see you. And he went, what? Who cares? What do I have to do with anybody? <laughs> he, and then K.K. went and he pouted. K.K. had an exceptional relationship. He knew him since he was six years old, it's eight years old. And Maharaji popped him on the head and said what's up what what's up you know what are you <laughs> what are you moaning about he said well these students have respectfully written to you and they want to come and so on and they're and he said Look, do whatever you want so he wrote back to krishnadas and said not so many words well uh Maharaji is available to anybody at any time, and, uh, you know, he, he made it sound like uh, it was perfectly fine for them to come over, even though he wasn't getting, they weren't getting any kind of special invite. <laughs> so they did go, not knowing that. They didn't find out till years later what Maharaji really said. What do I have to do with anything? Ciao. go. And so they went over, and and in my case, he just said, "Write to me when I'm in India." And I wrote to him as soon as I did. Um, uh, the Maharaja couldn't be found at that moment, and we actually met Ramdas and I for the first time in India after I had arrived. He'd been there four or five months, and I maybe several. And we met at uh, Swami Muktananda's ashram near near uh, Mumbai. You you know who Swami Muktananda is, I think. Yeah. So I had this. Uh, Meeting with Ramdas, and then he, boom, sent me up, and that was it. So, other people found it uh, at that point because it became known Ramdas was in India, and he'd be at the hotel, and people would come over, Ramdas, where? You know, it'd be really helter skelter like that. And then doing a meditation course in Gaya, where many people uh, met Ramdas and, and uh, or knew about him and then went on with him. And many people knew of it because of Dass used to hold these amazing um, summer retreats at his father's farm in New Hampshire. And we'd all get together. It was just yoga, chanting. It's in the movie. Uh, it's actually in the movie of Becoming Nobody a little bit, and which uh, there's a beautiful film that we have of that complete experience. So, uh, so people knew, and those who are a little bit more, shall we say, aggressively wanting to meet somebody like Ramdas described in his talks they
1: got over there yeah i mean these days it's hard to separate these guru figures from their various peccadillos and sexual transgressions etc we we often hear about <clears throat> gurus who uh who's Behavior is not in alignment with their highest principles, let's say. Um, they're not cooked.
2: Those are not the guru is a shitty word because there's the coke guru, there's the cleaning lady guru. I mean, there's gurus everywhere. That has nothing to do with an actual being that's there are beings that are called in India siddhas. They have gone beyond me and you. They are no more no longer polarized whatsoever. And, and the K.K., our friend, used to say, for every 10,000 saints that are gurus that are walking around India, there's, you know, um, you know like 10 siddhas, you know. So the, there is a huge difference between someone who's completely cooked and someone who's not. And the ones that are not act out in ways that uh, we are n- pretty used to here in America, especially, or in the West, right? It's such a common thing. And it's just um, uh, unfortunate in the way that how we relate with figures like this is a little askew. Uh, and uh, the, again, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama probably says it best because there have been Tibetan lamas recently that, that that has been the case as well. And he says, you know, just it's your experience, not what someone says tells you to do or not do. It's your inner experience. So it's trust. For me, I and what I relate to people, is intuitive trust is a huge thing. Huge. And to get there, you've got to do a little bit of practice to open up that door.
1: Yeah. I mean, what do you think the utility of the siddha is in terms of providing... Uh, you know f- uh some form of conveyance let's say from the feeling of separateness to the feeling of samadhi i mean w- w- what's the utility of siddha in this
2: well i mean i only knew well that's, i i knew of course maharaji i knew ananda maima who's a great woman um uh, uh, exemplar of no more me and you <laughs> and uh and some of the great tibetans that i have been fortunate uh, to meet you see the potential of us as humans i mean i'll put it into the most uh common uh grounded language we start to once you see this and uh you can do you can no longer um, move in that polarized, separated self in this world, um, with with uh, without any kind of wisdom—the uh, wisdom, the wisdom of, of being kind, compassionate. The wisdom of seeing your motivations, which is why mindfulness is such, you know, is an important practice. Absolutely. Seeing our motivations. You no longer can walk that walk anymore. So they actually instill this. You know, the ones that are cooked, completely cooked, they instill this by virtue of their own example. And then, then of course, you know, Ram Dass used to talk about the miraculous things that Ninkaroli Baba did all the time. And he was caught by them. And when he came back to India the second time, he realized, wait, it's not about that. It's about love. It's about that unconditionality. It's about kindness. It's about compassion. It's about serving people. It's about feeding people. Getting to the point where you can tell the truth because you're not living in fear. So that is... uh, the, they are exemplars of what we can be. And we don't have to be, you know, completely enlightened where, yes, you know, now you're able to perform magic tricks. It's nothing about that. It's just about the truth of, uh, as Ramdas has said himself, when is it enough what you need? When is it enough what you want, of what you want? It's
1: much more interesting to serve. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, in those moments where we feel that all of our needs are met, then love really becomes something given and not something taken. And we really need to access the present moment in order to grok that sensation. Because if you are always looking into the future with this mindset of if only and only if I achieve that or get this thing or add this thing to my pile, um, then, well, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be content. Um, But of course, you know, where that ends up. There's no end to that one, yeah. That's that's the old hedonic treadmill. So... um, so you know, I've heard Ramdas in various different lectures talk about Bhakti Yoga, talk about Ashtanga Yoga, and some of these obviously are somewhat interchangeable. But if there was a particular methodology, how would you, um, to Ramdas's teachings, how would you describe it? Hmm well certainly bhakti yoga
2: is is the uh, yoga of, of love but you know what the lineage which comes from neem baba to ramdas to others you know through all of us at one point or another the interesting thing is from the very get-go we get to india somehow ramdas finds out about a Vipassana medita- Insight Meditation Course in Bodhgaya, and I think you're familiar with that very much so because I know you work with Jack. Um, suddenly, there's a huge, uh, the influx of people, the huge influx of people, which is you know hundreds of people. It seemed huge at the time, but it'd be at the we'd go to these courses, and Maharaji would say. Oh, uh, he'd say in Hindi, "Tum jana, you're going to." And in English, you go course. You want to do the course? It seemed like a way to get rid of us, because he always seemed to be trying to get rid of us. You know, these young hippies hanging out. What the hell? You know, and more of them yeah. all the time. And uh, and then we come back from the course. I remember one time we came back from the course, and he's sitting outside a house that we were going to visit him at. And with uh, some Indian people, and oh, you just came back from the court. This is all through a translator. And yeah, he said, "Well, show you—you you know how to meditate now." He oh, and we go, "Yeah." He said, "Well, show me." And so we all sat up straight to meditate. Within ten seconds, this high-pitched laugh that he had. Hey, hey, hey look—they know how to meditate. <laughs> but the truth—the truth was that we all seem to gravitate towards Buddhist um, teachings, all the way from the Hinayana, the, the where the insight meditation comes from, from Burma, all the way to Tibet. And, uh, you know, to this day, Danny Goldman, who is, you know, an esteemed writer and uh, is close to the Dalai Lama, right, um I know, you know, we all have taken teachings from different Tibetans over the years. Um, in fact, one of the miraculous things that happened that Maharaji did, knowing everything, he I uh, had to go to uh, Delhi to get a, my passport renewed, Canadian, because I'm Canadian, and my former radio boss said, well, if you have any trouble at all, go to the Canadian High Commissioner, James George is his name, and I so I came from actually from Kosani, and I'm coming through. Uh, I stopped by where Kenchi where Neem Karoli Baba was, and he anyhow we had a whole conversation. Um, but he basically said, "You just uh, did you just have darshan of a Tibetan Lama." I go, "No, I don't know any. I never met a Tibetan in my entire life." You mean Munin, you know, this Buddhist meditation? He said, "Nay." Tibet Lama, he gave you darshan, he gave you teachings for half an hour. I go, no, Maharaji, I, really, I don't know <laughs> and Off I went to Delhi to get my passport renewed. And I said to James George at one point, is it true that uh, Canada is letting in Tibetan refugees? Because I had heard this. He said, yeah, as a matter of fact, and he points, out of a room, a den, comes a retinue of monks with, with a lama named Kalu Rinpoche, one of the great lamas of the last century. I just, you know, I I plucked, as they say in Yiddish. I hit the floor. First of all, I was meeting this incredible lama and then knowing, holy shit, he knows that? This isn't some thought I had. This is something that was going to happen like three days later, or a week later, three days later. And then... They went to interview this Lama. Uh, There was a couple of uh, Canadian CBC guys. And they went in and they said, come along. So I went in and they asked him stuff like about Christianity. And he said, I don't know anything about Christianity. (laughs) He was bored with them. He obviously didn't want to engage with them. And they said to me, well, why don't you ask him a question? As soon as they said that to me, he sat upright and lasered me like... uh, I and then I spilled out stuff about meditation and and how I can meditate in the mountains, but now I'm in the city. I can't, you know, I can't handle it. And uh, and he gave me all these teachings for a half an hour. So from that point, and this happened to many of us, um, we, I, I, uh, the retreats, for instance, that we have done when Ramdas started living in Maui, which was 2004, four or five. And then we started running retreats because we knew he couldn't go anywhere, so we organized them to be there a couple of times a year, these fairly large retreats. Every one of them, Jeff, had a Buddhist component to it. it. I mean, Jack has been primary there, but Roshi Joan Halifax, Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein, you name it, and that has been primary for us because there is the lineage that is represented by us all, and certainly by Ramdas, is bhakti yoga and discriminating wisdom, it's, and, that, and, and primarily from Buddhist thought. And that combination has, you know, well, we just came back from one two weeks ago, or a week and a half ago same thing with jack and trudy and uh and das and and a and a bunch of other uh, incredible people and it's that um joining of these two traditions that i i think is uh i think it's marvelous
1: marvelous marvelous um yeah well this kind of syncretism between um Well, certainly between like Taoism and Buddhism, that more or less birthed Zen. Um, I mean, you see these traditions that have um, uh, share a common substrate, and then they find the more kind of cultural elements, or you know, we we begin to um, disentangle them and reentangle them, and uh, and I think that that's that's part of. That's kind of baked into Buddhism is this notion that it's there's no final word of God. You know, it's, it's evolving within the Sangha, right? And that's what makes it so dynamic and wonderful. It's just that you and I right here in this conversation, we could have some, we could land on some moment of Satori that pushes the paradigm or the conversation forward or to the side or in different ways, and I think that that's, the fact that it's, uh, it's something that is alive is, um, super
2: important, for sure, for sure, it has to be, because as we know, um, the byword is impermanence, and that, and it's not a bad word, it's a good word, you know, just think of, you know, uh, when you get ill, and maybe, you know, I don't mean devastating ill, but even a headache, you can sit with it and know it is not going to stay the same, no matter what. And it is so that imp- so impermanence, in this way, it, it fits in with the idea of, of being curious and, and seeing how things fit together. And and you know, many people have different ways to get on the path and different introductions, and it takes them from one place to another. And there's constant change. With uh, it's it's really really important. Um, I would say, though, about, uh, Bhakti can get a really, um, bad name in that, well, I'll give you an example. Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, one of the great lamas translating Tibetan Buddhisms that exists out there. Uh, these books are, are just extraordinary, his books, um, when we first met him, which was with Ramdas, we had just come back from India, you know, uh, the second time in the 70s. And we would go down and see him, and he'd say, Oh, Ramdas is here, and his light and love army. <laughs> we were the light and lovers. Love. And, you know, he would jive us about, you know, the. Uh, the Indian hippie bhakti yoga-ish you know, yoga doing you know young people. and uh, so yeah, we had fun with that with him and uh, And the truth was we were there because we were really um, just absorbing this incredible wisdom and applying it and, and it merging it with the yoga of the heart. And I know, and Ramdas used to say something that I, uh, you know, definitely agree with. The especially the Tibetan view of the truth, shall we say, is so crystalline and so they call it vajra, cutting through so much. It's it's extraordinary. I mean, I've been captured by it. And, and it, it is easy to get captured by it mentally. And then you do, to me, you do one of two, there's two possibilities. One is you are doing that famous thing of like taking all this beautiful information and avoiding anything in terms of your personal, your, your, your psychology, your, you know, your habitual patterns, your neurotic tendencies, and doing the end run, right? Spiritual bypass. And the other thing is to just absolutely ignore uh, the heart process, which can be very difficult and painful, right? Because it brings up everything, all of our interrelationships. When we open our hearts, we would say chanting, you know, going to a Krishna's concert or whatever, you know, it opens us up to stuff that is not sometimes pretty, because it's a lot of emotional baggage is laying deep, deep recesses of our being, so uh, it can have that. And Ram Dass used to make fun of them, uh, make fun of the Buddhists in that way, you know, just saying, you know, this is uh, a, a, a giant trap, a gigantic trap. And and we'd have that dialogue with Jack and you know and others all the time.
1: Yeah. Well, the the irony here is that there is a temptation the moment that you embark on the the path of liberation to crave not to crave (laughs) which is a clinging in and of itself um yeah so this is the good one though that
2: could be a you know maybe we'll give that one up at the end i don't know
1: (laughs) right right but it is um uh, because we're so conditioned to uh, analyze everything rationally and empirically, yeah. uh, that it, you know it's it's uh, very tantalizing to practice Bhakti yoga uh, just for the intellectual intrigue of it, you know. Um, or well, it gets you it, or Buddhism, you know. Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, I mean that's the beauty of of. Uh, bhakti so that's a difficult thing i mean we're actually going to do a uh, well we're doing this wonderful course with commune with you guys <laughs> we haven't even said anything about it uh, that's a, a wonderful med- well we mentioned the meditation course with Ramdas and friends that uh, jeff will talk about in a minute i'm sure uh, but uh, we're doing something around the yoga of the heart a course and and we're going to investigate with people um, just some of the Promises and pitfalls, as he used to call it, uh, that come with that particular practice, because there certainly is. And um, that's why discriminating wisdom is extremely
1: important ingredient. Mm. Yeah. I think there's like this fine line of delineation between faith, which could be categorized as sort of belief in the absence of evidence, and devotion, which is really more a kind of a trust in, in, in a way. And um, and it, I, I've personally had sort of a tricky time, sort of like a minefield, discriminating between those things because, you know, I, I am uh, empirically minded to some degree. I love medical science and I love physiology and I love uh, environmental science and um, life sciences in general. Um, and I am interested in, in dissecting how things are and how things work. Um, yet at the same time, that can provide a great blockage into what might be called intuitive wisdom you know, um, and uh, and and finding that delicate, that sensitive balance between the two of them.
2: Absolutely, well, well put, Jeff. I mean, that is uh, especially for Westerners, especially difficult. We are so attached to the belief of the power of our minds. You know, and that's really, uh, you asked earlier, yeah, well, so kind of what is the effect of a Neem Karoli Baba? He shattered that. I mean, that's what happened. I mean, that is probably the biggest thing. He shattered our minds. We could no longer depend on that empirical rationalization of who we are in this world. That was gone. Even if we hadn't embodied the potential of that intuitive wisdom. But we were well on the path, you know, and it's been a a lifetime here in in terms of, when I look back, of the progression of it. It's pretty interesting. And uh, um, thank God that's all I gotta say.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, love was such a central theme and central word to Ram Dass's mm. life and, and being. And uh, I wonder if you could unpack how you've come to understand that word or that symbol, I suppose, mm. uh, because there's a lot of different w- ways to potentially understand it. Yeah.
2: Well, it's it's another. It, we have really wrecked so many words in the English language at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. We talked about guru. You know, it's just uh, like surrender. There's uh, when Ramdas first came back and he started telling his story of being in India, meeting Maharaji and all, and practicing yoga. He would say, "Well, I know there's a few things here that are really tough for me to even mention: guru, surrender." Love <laughs> it's really, oh my God, look what's happened, you know, um well, I think the word uh we're used to conditional love, transactional love, I mean that's you know, maybe you know, like uh, when I was telling you the story of first meeting Ramdas m- at that time in Montreal, uh, and he created an unconditional zone, and I would. I thought to myself later. Well, I ex- potentially experienced that with my mother, with a mother, right? That is feeding you. There's an unconditionality and caring for you as a baby, but I couldn't really remember that. And uh, this was the first. It quickly went downhill for me after that. When this was the first moment. Uh, you know, uh, in my, when I met him, what, early 20s, whatever. This was a moment that was so profound that, wow, there's actually a field here, a vibrational field here that I feel the unconditionality of, of this love. And I think so to properly uh, uh, define love is to include the word unconditional and uh, and being love, and this was a big thing for Ramdas. Being love, not you're not doing anything. You're not, you know. We and we experienced that with Neem Karoli Baba. You knew that there wasn't someone deciding to throw an apple to a person as an expression of love or grace or whatever. It was just happening. We knew that, so we had that. We had something to look to in in relation to read I, i'm saying this now of course i wasn't thinking this then to redefining what love really means you know and you know who's gone along uh, the his holiness the dalai lama has done so much for for us my my only religion is kindness he would say right we have to develop compassionate mothers. we It's all about women who come up and are having children, and they have a compassion the way my mother, speaking uh, His Holiness, uh, had this giant compassion. He said, that's why I am who I am now. It was literally passed on. That's what we... Uh, our hope for the future is compassionate mothers and then children, and then from generation to generation. That is our hope for the future. So I think, you know, redefining love, faith, for instance. You know, Sharon Salisbury has a great, wise faith. You know, it's a book called Faith, but it's really wise faith. And that's really, so I think, that, again, that's discriminating wisdom with love.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, love, at least in the West, gets lumped in to the taxonomy of of emotions, you know, so it's like, okay, well, I, there's some sort of biochemical, uh, biochemically produced sensation in me arising, and now it's subsiding, and there it goes, (laughs) you know, Um, but, um, you know, when I hear Ram Dass talk about love, it's, um, it's, it's awareness beyond the ego, essentially. It's um, it's a state of being, really, that you align with or that you visit. It doesn't really visit you. Um, uh, it's I suppose kind of like Colorado in that sense. Although you don't have to get on an airplane, um, it, that it's already it's all always in you. And I, I think you know the, the words that you brought up, like unconditional. When you think of like meta. For example, the bringing forth of loving-kindness unconditionally or Karuna, the identification of someone else's suffering as your own or Mudita, the experience of joy only for somebody else's joy. I mean, how wonderful is that? You know, so these are the the signatures of love. You know, in this day and age I often think of um, providing someone with my absolute undivided attention is an act of love and um, particularly in like you know the era of distraction that we're we're living in and that's not disconnected from upeka like this idea of equanimity which often kind of sort of gets categorized as you know passivity or conciliation or whatever but not uh, that's not I think that's an improper understanding of it. I mean, for me, it's bringing your full self, your full-throated, energetic, passionate self to this moment with you, Raghu, right here, right now, without any attachment to the result of what this might yeah. be. <laughs> yeah. exactly. I'm just here with you, yeah. and if we could all just do that for each other, my God, you know, yeah. Yeah. we would bend the arc. Unfortunately,
2: anti-ethical to our the way we grew up and, and and the installation of the belief systems in in the empirical ness of it all, uh, you know, so it makes it a little bit, uh, which is again, got to do practice to create a spaciousness. That allows you to see the, the, uh, the reality of, of how we are, uh, clinging. Uh, Joseph Goldstein, who by the way, anybody who hasn't heard of Joseph, like get on uh, with it, has because, to get hip immediately. Oh my <laughs> God, yeah, and he wrote a book called "Mindfulness," which is just phenomenal, but he was wi- w- when he was with us uh, in Maui one year, he was with a young person who had just gotten on the path, who was assigned to drive him around. And that person said, "You know, you've been doing this for a long time. You've been on the path. Can you just give me one, just one? Ma- What's your major piece of advice, okay, that you could give me?" And he turned to him and he went, "Stop clinging." And you see how everything is that, and if uh, and and clinging is one thing, but resisting and pushing away is part of clinging, because you're clinging to, to be in a, a, a more comfortable moment, for instance. And we have such a hard time with that, and we have such a hard time with uh, discomfort and making friends with discomfort. I mean, it's just... Uh, just going to India, and I did everything, you know, um, me, as Jack would say, it's okay to be human, and I found the places that were going to have the best food and the most comfortable accommodations. In India, that's not really possible all the time, or if any of you know, barely much of the time. And you know, and I just watched how I do that. And we are all doing that. And that's where mindfulness comes in, because you can get some and meditation to create enough space, as I said before, for us to be able to walk more lightly around Mm. these day-to-day life issues.
1: Yeah, I mean, parenthood is a place where clinging uh, comes up, you know, on the regular. And I I mentioned to you before we started that my eldest uh, daughter has relocated some 6,000 miles away. from me, anyways, to in, in Paris, and that process of letting go of of not clinging, um, you know, I could intellectually think through it, but the moment that i had to take her to the air to the airport and say that, you know this is it after 18 years of raising you you're not sleeping at home tonight or tomorrow night or the next night you know or whatever and i don't want to dramatize it too much because she'll be back next week for christmas but nevertheless you know um you know i, I you know I, it it spurred on some meditation around clinging and you know um uh, nirvana literally translates as as blowing out right so um, so if you think of like your breath the most certain way to die is to cling to your breath right you know the only way it comes back to you is if you don't cling to it you just have to you have to let it go Mm -hmm. and uh, I'm I'm praying the same is true with daughters But uh. these are these are lessons that, you know, mm. we hopefully pick up. Um yeah. we hopefully pick up along the way.
2: Yeah, yeah. We will. We do. It's a matter of a little bit of trust in that part of us that is completely hooked into the universal mind, period.
1: Yeah. It's interesting th- that you say the word trust. I, I interviewed um Louis Schwarzberg uh a couple oh, of weeks yeah, yeah. ago. I I'm sure if you know yeah, Louis. He's great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, amazing uh, cinematographer and yeah, director. Yeah. He's made some beautiful films. He has a beautiful film with Jack in it right now called Gratitude. Yes, Abil. yes, he's, I know. Um, And uh, he talked a lot about nature and trust hmm. and how much... It, it, within the parentheses or brackets of faith, because I was trying to get at with him, like, what does faith actually mean for you? And he's actually said, well... I spend so much time with nature and that part of my faith in nature is trust, is I'm gonna set up this camera on a year-long time lapse and watch this flower you know, blossom and expand. And I'm gonna spend basically my entire year for six seconds of, of documentary film, mm. I have to have a lot of trust in the foundational intelligence of nature and i just have to surrender myself to that Mm. and i thought that was just like amazingly beautiful and Mm. um and it takes faith out of this kind of like oh i believe in this uh you know, bearded yet invisible creator of the universe that has some moral abacus on some mountaintop, like monitoring my sexual transgressions. So <laughs> the Abra- you know the Abrahamic kind of faith, yeah. and, and this is a very different form um, of faith, much more as surrender and trust. So yeah. that helped me. It yeah. helped me. Anyways. Oh, that's great. <laughs> that's great. Oh, I should. Um, so we got this project. Coming. Yes. Yes. Uh, and um, uh, so it's uh, I believe. Um, well, just to you know, timestamp our conversation today. We're talking in the middle of December at the end of 2022, because I'm sure people will be listening and watching this way into the future. But this is where we are right here, right now, anyways. And in about a month's time, so middle of January, January 16th, I believe, um, 2023 will be the launch of a, a great collaboration that we're working on together to bring uh, meditation practice to as many people as we'll have it, and uh, <laughs> and hopefully more. Um, it's certainly celebrating a lot of uh, Ram Dass' work, but uh, as you mentioned, some other friends and luminaries. Uh, yeah, that Jack
2: mix. and Sharon and Joseph and, and, and on. You know, we were talking about music before, and so what uh, this wonderful collaboration is uh, coming to fruition with both visual and music as part of it. So uh, we provided these wonderful meditations from the Be Here Now Network and Jeff and Commune got uh, some beautiful visuals and also, m- very importantly, the way that the meditations ride on top of some just wonderful ambient music because um, i was checking it out the other day and you know it it sets you back in your chair in a more relaxed fashion right away you don't have to think okay i better sit up and do this you know it's funny how music just gets relaxed. you'll be okay you know and uh so this um you know uh, combination i think is very powerful jeff and I think people are going to, I mean, it's unique. This is all, uh, even though the meditations, uh, you know, I've been on podcasts that I've done and, and just stuff from Ramdas. Uh, at the same time, having this combination, as I said, is really uh, quite wonderful. I'm, I'm really happy that we're doing this. I think it's going to be of great benefit because it just does make it easier to be with the uh, meditations that are being guided by the various teachers.
1: Hmm. Well, yeah, I'm so glad that you uh, that you like it because obviously um, you've uh, you've been around the block uh, as far as meditation programs go, and um, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously we're both uh, friends with with Mark Watts and Alan Alan Watts. I said we're both admirers of Alan, and he he always framed meditation in a way that that I really loved. He said, you know you can often think of meditation as this sort of dismal chore um, but if you can reframe it as just grooving with the present, just groove with the present and feel just like no pressure involved, all you, you know, it's such a gift just for you know 15-20 minutes of your day just to groove with the now, you know, that's, it's as simple as that. It doesn't have to be, um, you know, it doesn't have to have all this other kind of... Uh, Should have, would have, could have. Uh, 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 yeah, artifice <laughs> on top of that. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, and then you know, the benefits will be self-evident, you know. Um, yes, you know, great. It, it can relieve you from stress and, and anxiety. Uh, it can um, increase your heart rate variability. It can uh, certainly be good for your immune system. In fact, uh, dropping your cortisol levels will help you produce more neutrophils, uh, my favorite little innate immune system molecule. Um, and we could go on and on about the development of additional gr- uh, gray matter in the brain and, and all of these, but these are again are, are sort of happy byproducts um, of just being in process. And uh, I really think that this this program is going to. Um, really going to touch a, a lot of people yeah. and for a very very long time so yeah, i couldn't yeah. be more thrilled than yeah uh,
2: and it, you know and it's uh, as you just as you were just describing it made me think it's just great to sit down and hang out in a space that is not your you're your, you know i'm okay i gotta get up i gotta brush my teeth i go to a bathroom i gotta have coffee and then next you know the movie of me is what we call Krishna calls it what we the movie of me—it's—it's—it uh, it's, allows you to cut through that space, which basically um, is the unending clinging space. And if you just have a few moments, yeah, you're going to go off into thoughts, and yeah, and you're going to come back. As Sharon Salzberg says, the beauty of us as humans—you can always go back; you can always return to whatever your focus may be, breath, mantra, whatever it may be. And uh, to, to allow oneself to be in that space, even just for, uh, if it ends up just being a few minutes, is refreshing,
1: incredibly refreshing. Yeah. That should be actually, it, get refreshed. That should be it, you know. <laughs> well, you know, there's actual clinical research, not to always bring it back to, uh, you know, double-blind placebo-controlled clinical trials. But one of the leading indicators for self-reported well-being or happiness is the yoking between your thoughts and your actions or your intentions and what you're actually doing. So, so much of the time, if you think about it just in one's own personal experience, we're doing something and we're thinking about something else well it turns out that a wandering mind is a patently unhappy mind and so even if you just take five ten fifteen minutes in a day and really try to just align your thoughts with your actions knowing that you will wander off but um The happiest people are the people that can always continually come back. And it's uh, in, in some ways, you know, coming back to your breath or coming back to your focus or whatever your particular drishti is or your mantra or your malas or whatever you're using. And there is a great parallel there of always coming back Around your own personal journey because I know that I'm always coming back to the goal of trying to align my works and actions in the world with my highest spiritual principles and I fall off that more times than anyone could count in a particular day but you keep coming back. And you keep coming back. And that's uh meditation is an incredible training um in
2: that regard. Yeah, so yeah. Mayor Bob has said when you, you fall down and you splash in the mud, you get up and you wipe yourself <laughs> off and keep going. And that's right. you know, that's the beauty of us as humans. So So seven great t- to hang yeah, here. Seven with you.
1: times seven times down, eight times up. Yeah. That is life. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh man. I'm so uh, so grateful to uh, to get to know you. I'll be in Ojai in uh, ten days, so oh. maybe I'll knock knock if you're
2: absolutely. there. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Let me know. Great to be here, Jeff. All right, and, and All right. really happy for this col- collaboration as well. Me too. All right,
1: peace. Peace.